Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We have been walking through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible. And just like the title proclaims, but contrary to uh, much misunderstanding, the book is meant to reveal, not conceal. It's not a puzzle book that only the cleverest can figure out, but it's a picture book for all the children of God. And like all great picture books, it is filled with beautiful imagery and metaphors all pointing to the profound and eternal truths about God and his work throughout history. In the first three chapters, uh, we were introduced to Jesus who, as the Lord and shepherd of his church, sent out seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, commending them for their faithfulness, but also warning them against sin and folly. Now, while the seven churches were actual historical churches that struggled with a mixture of faithfulness and folly, Jesus' words to them still apply to us today because people are people, and we still struggle with, this, with similar issues that the early first century churches struggled with. And, and the point is that as we remain faithful Jesus blesses and grows his church. But as we grow faithless, Jesus warns his church and prunes his church in order to restore it to healthy fruitfulness. Now, in tonight's vision, after John hears the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, it says in the vision that he looks and beholds a door standing open in heaven. And as he's taking through the door, what what does he see? He sees the throne room of God. And three prepositions, there's many prepositions throughout the passage, but three are going to frame our time together in the scripture. On, between, and around. First, who John sees on the throne. Second, who John sees between the throne and all those around it. And third, who John sees all around the throne, okay? I will read the whole passage out loud of Revelation chapters 4 and 5 because I want to take advantage of the promise in the opening words of this book in Revelation 1-3 where we read this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep it, uh, keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. God, we come to you tonight with great anticipation to hear from you, the God of Revelation. We thank you that you are a God that is bending over backwards to be known. In the great game of hide-and-seek, you are not the one hiding. We often are the ones hiding from you. And Father, we pray that this evening, that as we read your Revelation, as we are given a glimpse to peer through the, the door of heaven, that we would see you in all of your glory. We would see and understand in fresh ways the work of Jesus Christ and the restoration that brings to all of creation. 
Father, we pray that you would work deeply in our hearts and minds to edify us in this time together and equip us as your ambassadors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 4, starting at verse 1. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, all full of eyes, all around and within, and all day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then I saw in the right hand of him who seated on the throne a scroll written within on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And so I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is quite a captivating vision. There is so much going on here that we can't possibly understand it all, but I'm hoping in our brief time together we might be able to understand something of it. And so what I want to first look at is that preposition on. First, notice who John sees on the throne. In verse 1, John saw the door open to heaven, right? He, heard, he heeded the same voice that he heard in chapter 1 come up here. That's the voice of Christ. We only enter heaven through the mediation of Christ. And he's transported by the Spirit to the throne room. Now, John's little visit to this throne room is like going to an air control tower at an airport, right? Walking around at a busy airport, uh, it kind of appeals to the casual observer that everything's just moving in all different types of directions. Baggage here, vehicles there, planes there, going every which way. But if the observer is escorted up to the control tower, he can see the big picture and hear the carefully orchestrated plans of all the controllers. Similarly, through John's vision, we are escorted to the control tower of the universe. And as we listen and watch, we see the big picture and hear the carefully orchestrated plans of God carried out through the universe throughout history. In verse 2, we see that John beheld the glory of the one seated on the throne. We have to remember the throne represents God's kingly rule, and his appearance surpasses the splendor of all other earthly kings. This is a kingly court, you know, fit for only him. Notice it reflects the glory of light in all of its multicolored beauty. In verse 3, you have jasper, which is white or translucent. You have carnelian, which is red. You have emerald, which is green. And since the kings can only obtain precious stones through international trade, the presence of all these jewels indicates the reach of his kingship. Now, similar to other times, whenever we see the glory of God show up in a magnificent way, like we saw at Mount Sinai, we see flashes of thunder and roll, flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder and fire, and we see the same thing here. In other words, God is appearing in the full beauty of his majesty, and he is seated on the throne as the king of heaven and earth. And here we see the whole universe... The whole universe is destined to be filled with his glory. Now, we also see the extent of his rule pictured in successive circles of his servants. You might say concentric circles. The innermost circle of servants are four living creatures, 
right? Now, in the ancient Near East, thrones and palaces often had statues of winged lions in the king's presence. So why do we have these four living creatures with the face of a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle? Vern Poitras says that it's most likely because they image the highest glory of the domains in which they abide. The lion is the greatest and fiercest of wild animals, the ox the strongest of domesticated animals, the eagle the most majestic of birds, and man is ruler over all animals. In other words, these amazing creatures are describing the unique glory and reflecting the glory of God as supreme. And they're described similarly to the cherubim and seraphim, the winged creatures who who never cease to declare the glory of God and his holiness. So the, the four living creatures are in that innermost circle, and they're followed by 24 elders in that next successive circle. Now, some commentators believe that these are heavenly angels that maybe represent both the Old Covenant and New Covenant, maybe 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples of Christ. Others believe that that angels, since angel can mean messenger, that these are actually human beings, human agents that are responsible for the safekeeping of the message of the king, the safekeeping of the word of God. And so, in other words, they are human agents. That's probably what I lean toward because God, uh, Jesus had told his disciples they would reign with him on the throne. And we see elsewhere that, that we all will be throwing our crowns down before his feet. In the next successive circle, we see myriads of other angels and messengers. And then in the outermost circle, we see it's filled with creatures of heaven and earth and sea. But here's the point. At the center of it all is the king of the universe, seated in incomparable glory, perfect holiness, unimaginable power and might. And all hearts and minds are directed to him in amazement and in worship. This is what heaven is really like. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, it means that we need to keep in mind what is truly real. I don't know about you, but we live in a broken world and some weeks are harder than others. And oftentimes it's difficult to believe God is in control. God is good. We see so much brokenness and pain and rebellion and sin. And we need to be reminding ourselves of what is ultimately true. No matter how much you are tempted to doubt it, God is seated on the throne His glory and beauty are beyond compare. And he is ruling all things according to his perfect plan. That is what is real. Our universe is not chaotic and meaningless. No, there is a a God of infinite wisdom who orders the chaos perfectly to accomplish his good purposes. So God is on the throne and he is ruling. We must remember that. And secondly, we have to remember that heavenly glory... Well, it's not primarily about you and me. It's not about our comfort or our rights. It's interesting as you talk to people about what they think heaven is and what will happen when they first get there. You know, their questions are always like, well, will I see grandma? Will my dog be there? Can I play soccer? I really like soccer. And these are wonderful questions. Of course, heaven is going to be filled with much joy. And yeah, there'll be soccer there and I'll be really good at it. But the point of the matter is, is that most of the time when you talk to people about heaven, they're talking about the gifts of heaven. They're talking about them. 
and their comfort and their rights. But that's not what makes heaven heavenly any more than what makes a marriage heavenly to say, well, I want to get married because I want someone to cut my grass and pay my bills and put food on the table. I want to get married for all the gifts of marriage. Well, you'll never have a heavenly marriage unless you're captivated by the beloved, by the giver of all the gifts. That's what makes heaven heavenly. And that's what we see here in this picture, that heaven is primarily about God and his glory and being captivated by it. And the reason why we enjoy the creation in its renewed um, in all of its renewal, is because we have him to enjoy it with. So heaven is not primarily about our comfort. It's about God's glory and holiness and power. His beauty and majesty is in focus here. And those that describe heaven without God at the center don't know what they're talking about. That's actually how hell is described. For hell is a place where human beings demand to be the center of it all. And since every human sinful heart demands the same thing, everyone's going to be demanding my comfort, my desires, my rights. And that's why it's a place of constant strife and increasing alienation. But heaven is focused on the Lord. He is at the center. And to make sense of John's vision, we must must notice who is on the throne in all of his glory. God is at the center, not us. He alone is worthy of our worship and glory. And he is reigning, and so we have great hope. So the first preposition of significance here is on. Who is on the throne? The second is between. Notice who John sees between the throne and all those around it. And here John provides the reason the worshipers have access to the throne. And it's not because God has lowered his standards of holiness. The four-winged creatures still declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. His holiness is unchanging from eternity past to eternity future. He is not lowering the bar to receive sinners. That would be a terrible, terrible idea because that would mean we are locked into an eternal reality as sinners, not restored, made holy. But something else is pictured here. God is doing something to redeem sinners, to transform them into those who are worthy to fill his courts. What a joyous reality that is. That when we are in heaven, we will no longer struggle with the sins and the doubts and the idols that we wrestle with daily. We will no longer endure the brokenness of this world. We will no longer suffer. Now, how God accomplishes his work of redemption and renewal is spelled out in writing in the scroll. The scroll is a key element in John's vision. Look at it in chapter 5, verse 1. Right after describing the heavenly throne room with God at the center of it all, John points out that the one seated on the throne has a scroll in his right hand. Now, while the scroll is key, we've got to ask, well, what is it? What's on it? Is this God's law? Is it his promises? Is it his legal will? And if we compare it to Daniel 12, commentators say it's most likely the scroll is God's plan and destiny for all of history. God is writing history on the scroll, and this is the full account of that history. Notice it is written on the front and the back, indicating a complete copy of history. Nothing is missing. 
and it is sealed with seven seals. The number seven represents the completeness that brings lasting rest, as in the Sabbath. Seven royal seals demonstrate God's complete authority to decree all that's written within. Now, the unsealing of the scrolls implies not just the right to see what's written on it, but the ability to accomplish what's written on it, which is why when a mighty angel proclaims in chapter 5, verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal, there is loud weeping. For in verse 3, we, we realize no one in heaven or earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll or look into it. No one can carry out its mission. Do you understand what is happening as John peers through the door of heaven? In the throne room of heavenly worship, John is weeping because it appears that none, and I mean no one, no matter how mighty the angel might be, no matter how wise the elders may be, no one is able to accomplish God's plan for the world. And you must feel the weight of this reality if we are ever to understand the glory of the gospel. The most majestic of living creatures cannot do it. None of the myriads of angels, no one in all of creation, in heaven on earth, all are unworthy to the task. It is too much. It is overwhelming. They cannot do it. How does this apply? If, if we do not understand the reality of the situation, we will never make sense of Christianity. Too many people have been deceived into thinking, well, anyone can make the cut. Are you kidding me? This is heaven we're talking about. Most of us can't make the cut to an Ivy League school, let alone heaven. We can't even make the cut to the local travel team. So why would we ever think we can make the cut for heaven just by trying our hardest and doing our best? If humans refuse to, if humans refuse to grade on a scale, on a curve, why would we expect God to do so? Notice what John does not hear when eavesdropping on the courts of heaven. He does not hear, John, weep not. It's not that bad. Everyone can come as long as you're genuine and authentic. He does not hear, weep not. The king has set aside his scroll. His plans are too demanding, his will. Mm. He's deferring to your plan. God doesn't lower the standard or surrender his rights as Lord and creator. The elders don't comfort John by pointing him to himself or to anyone else in creation. Rather, the elder comforts John by pointing him to the one who stands between, between the throne and the rest of creation. Look at it in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as it had been slain, as if it had been slain. See, as always, the gospel just surpasses our expectations. It actually breaks the mold, right? Salvation's not found in lowering the standards, as religious people often do, you know, just by focusing on externals and neglecting the heart. Nor is salvation found in redefining the standards as secular or postmoderns do. Salvation is found in the one who alone can meet the standard by joining together what no one else can join together. 
perfect holiness and irresistible grace, flawless justice and perfect mercy, divine power and human weakness. And the breaking of expectations in order to meet the demands of this salvation are demonstrated in John's vision as he hears one thing, but he sees something else. Notice in verse 5, he hears, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion has come, the root of David, and he's conquered all. Now after you hear that you're going to see a lion, he turns expecting to see a lion strong and mighty. But notice at verse 6, he says, Between the throne and the rest of creation, what does he see? Not a lion, but a lamb, one standing as though it had been slain, still carrying the marks of being sacrificed upon its body. What does this mean? It it means that the power of God's anointed one, that lion of Judah from the tribe of David, was demonstrated not with a growl, not by pouncing on its prey, but the power of God's anointed one was demonstrated by a willing sacrifice. Chapter 5, verse 9, by a costly payment of blood that proved to be sufficient payment to ransom a people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So here's the reason that human worshipers have access to the throne. And the reason that the rest of creation joins in the worship song is not because of what we have done. It's because of what God promised to do and then accomplished for us. That is good news. And it means that if you are a broken sinner, if you have rebelled against God, if you know you don't even live up to your own standards, there is hope for you. You do not need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You simply need to turn back and look to Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you, to pay the penalty that you deserve to pay but won't if you trust him to pay it for you. That is good news. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's declared here, and it's the news that changes the world one life at a time. It's the news that will restore all of creation. It's the news that all of creation will sing about. And this leads to our last point. Third, what John sees around the throne, and what he sees is the fullness of worship. What John hears from around the throne is a symphony of praise. And what he sees is each part of creation playing, playing its role with all of its heart. Right Immediately around the throne, you have the seraphim in verse 8, singing of God's eternal holiness and power. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The next concentric circle, you have the 24 elders, and after throwing down their crowns in verse 10, they sing about God's absolute power and honor as the creator of all things. In verse 11, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created everything. They they sing about just the the majesty of his creative power, the beauty of it. And then again in chapter 5, these same 24 elders sing a new song, a second song, We learn that it's a new song in verse 9 of chapter 5. Not the old song of creation where we just heard about his wisdom and might as creator, but a new song of redemption of Jesus as the all-sufficient redeemer. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign over a new heaven 
and new earth. And then the the angels can't resist, right? The angels are just biting their tongue. They can't wait to break out in praise. And the angels break out in praise in verse 11. Then then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of the angels, number myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you see the overwhelming joy? Have you ever been struck by such beauty? You're so moved, you can't stop talking. That is what's captured here. And then in the last concentric circle, the outer circle, the most remarkable thing happens. The voiceless sing praise in their own way. The rest of creation sings out in song and joins it. Look at verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and might forever and ever. The heavenly song is amplified everywhere. The pounding beat of it is felt on heaven and earth and under the earth. Have you ever been to really a big party where they have a really big sound system? It's just a pounding. You hear the music in your bones. And that's what we have here, the heavenly song amplified everywhere, pounding, a pounding beat felt everywhere throughout the cosmos. And every creature in their own way joins in the song of worship, clapping and dancing to its glorious beat in the perfect peace of shalom. And then this is the climax given in the last verse, verse 14. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Like an echo, the sound of music bounces off the entire creation back to the throne room of God and the seraphim surrounding the throne sing out a final note and glorious crescendo, amen, amen, yes, finally. And overcome with joy and wonder, the elders just throw down their crowns and fall down and worship. Each member of God's creation playing their part And only in symphony together can we express the full beauty and richness of God's glory and honor and power and majesty. So how does this apply? Two questions. Can you hear the music of heaven? Revelation plays us a promo. Do you tune your heart to the promises of God? Or do you allow your heart to be drowned out by the cacophonies of this world? Will you tune your ears to heaven's music? Or will you continue to drown it out with your own worries and lusts and desires? Can you hear the music of heaven? And secondly, when you hear it, will you play your part? What is your part in this symphony of heaven? Each of us has a glorious part to play. Do you understand the honored status you and I have as those made in the image of God to reflect his glory? And as we tune our eyes and behold him and our ears, we tune and listen to his word. And as we, we orient and posture ourselves to others and we recognize how they reflect God's glory and their role, and we come alongside and we, we in symphony encourage and pray for and participate with. A beautiful song of praise is raised up 
the witness of the kingdom is expressed to a broken world who really, really needs to hear this song. And the goodness of God's creation shines through. The goodness of God's redeemed people shines through. And the longing for it to be fully restored shines through. So in summary, here we have a sneak peek. Revelation gives us a glimpse of this future glory as John peers through heaven's door. And who John sees on the throne is the king worthy of all worship. And who John sees between the throne and all those around it is the reason we have to access this glory and to participate it. And then who John sees around the throne is a symphony of praise as each part plays their role in creation. And what a glorious, joyful thing it is to be part of this symphony. Let us pray. God, thank you for your glorious word. Thank you for this glimpse into heaven. We can't do it justice. We can't describe it in any way that, that does it justice. But we, we try to understand. We're grasping to understand. We thank you that you bless us in reading this and wrestling with it and trying to understand it. And we pray, Lord, that that through reflecting on it, we would see your, your glory and be captivated by it. We, see, we pray that we would see the sufficiency of Christ and take rest in it. And we, see, we pray that we would see the, the renewal you are doing in this creation and that we would be part of that great symphony and join you in that great work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.